0: Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. For today's show, we're gonna take a couple of policy journeys. But what is a policy journey, you say? Well, it's a term I just made up to describe the process of looking outside of one's current environment to learn about public policies tested out in other places. As you, of course, know, every country across the globe is dealing with the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic in one way or another. And here in the U.S., the impacts have been disproportionately felt by Black, Latinx, indigenous, and low-income communities. To address these impacts and better expand opportunity for all, many policymakers and community leaders across the country are looking to create a recovery that's inclusive and sustainable. But where do you start? And that's where a policy journey kicks in. In the last year, Urban Institute researchers have worked to identify promising policies in five topic areas that local U.S. policymakers identified as important for an inclusive recovery. On this podcast, we're going to look at two of those areas better use of parks and public space, and scaling up broadband internet. So grab your passport, jump aboard this train, and let's get this policy journey on the road. So here's a question for you. Have you thought more in the past year about the value of green spaces, and getting outside, and what it means to your mental and physical health than maybe ever before? I know I have, and it's important to know that the research backs this up. Outside spaces are good for us, and outside places in cities mean public spaces.
1: Public spaces are really any type of space that's open, accessible, free to people. So we're talking here about parks and green spaces. Those are some of the most popular public spaces, but also roads, sidewalks, benches, just anything that is open and public for all. And so some of the more recognized examples of public spaces are Central Park in New York. In my hometown in Kingston, Jamaica, we have a pretty large one called Emancipation Park.
0: That's Kimberly Burroughs. She's a technical assistance manager in the Research to Action Lab at Urban. A large part of her work focuses on equitable access to parks, green spaces, and understanding how to activate these spaces using placemaking strategies. She says parks and green spaces can provide economic, health, social, and environmental benefits to individuals and communities. They can adapt to a variety of needs where people can experience nature, exercise, and interact with each other. Here's Kimberly. So
1: there's both physical and mental health benefits, benefits around well-being, benefits around happiness many folks have said that they feel happier when they're in public spaces there's actually some research that came out of the UK that said just spending 2 hours in parks and green spaces alone increase happiness one of the harder values to measure but is equally important is around social connection so feeling like you're in a space and you identify with the space you feel belonging you feel this is a place that you want to be. You perceive the space to be safe. Since March 2020,
0: the COVID 19 pandemic has underscored the value of open public spaces for mental and physical health and accelerated efforts to adapt and repurpose underutilized spaces for community use.
2: It's going to force cities to rethink how public spaces are being implemented, how they're going to be managed, and how they're going to be used. And in some cases, public spaces are used for emergency places for vaccinations, for healthcare services. I think the menu of options are quite large and there are many, many creative ways of using public spaces. And and now we're forced to rethink how we innovate and change the way we, we use public spaces and make them still very relevant for people and communities.
0: That's John Kirkaw. He's a senior urban development specialist at the World Bank. He focuses on all sorts of issues, including municipal finance, infrastructure investments, and neighborhood improvements. Kimberly also saw some significant changes.
1: Definitely seeing that some things are moving to permanent. So, for example, having restaurants utilize sidewalks and expand into the concept of street eateries. We're seeing that a lot in D.C. In the Georgetown area, we're seeing a lot of the restaurants taking up sidewalk space.
0: In New York City, 12,000 restaurants and bars were given permission to operate outdoors. In Minneapolis, sections of lakefront parkways and roadways have been reclaimed for recreational use. And in Richmond, Virginia, unused parallel parking spaces have been repurposed into pocket parks. Many of these changes have actually been made permanent. And this is good. But on the flip side, access to quality parks can be uneven and inequitable.
1: So let's take Rock Creek Park in D.C., for instance. It's a pretty large footprint of D.C., but at the same time, where are the access points and what are the income levels of the neighborhood or the demographics of the neighborhoods that have access to those points? Are we talking about predominantly white neighborhoods? Are we talking about wealthier neighborhoods? So it's not enough just to have an abundance of green space. There's so much more to it because we need to talk about Who has access to the space? What do these people look like? And are there needs being met by the green space that's there?
0: Don't believe us? Well, let's go to the statistics. In the 100 most populous U.S. cities, neighborhoods that are mostly populated by people of color have 44% less park acreage on average than predominantly white neighborhoods. In fact, parks serving mostly communities of color are on average half the size and five times as crowded as parks serving mostly white populations.
1: So the pandemic really drew a sharp divided line between the haves and the have-nots. And in the United States, we're seeing that the haves and the have-nots typically look like wealthier white communities having access to quality green space and lower income communities of color being those that lack access or have limited access to green spaces and quality green spaces. I think quality is just, such an important point to underscore here, because you might have access to a space, but it might not be a space that anybody even wants to go to. It might be a space that you don't even perceive to be safe. So no one wants to go to a space that has broken glass or has a lot of weeds or grass growing up, or even has poor lighting. Like you want to be in a space that feels welcoming. And really like having that perception of safety
0: so far, we've talked about the benefits of public spaces, the value it brings to cities and its residents, and how the pandemic has shifted thinking about the design and functionality of public spaces. But who's doing this well? Here's John. Cities that come
2: to mind are places like Medellin in Colombia, Singapore, Barcelona, even New York. You know, some cities, whether it's like London or Paris, they're literally making their whole city more bikeable and walkable and closing streets. Barcelona is interesting. I'm not sure if you've heard of the superblocks where you're converting a large portion of the city into pedestrian areas. Actually,
0: John, we have heard about superblocks. As documented in a recent Urban Institute brief, superblocks are a large-scale effort to reclaim streets and other public spaces for local residents. Think of them as car-free zones for pedestrians and cyclists to maneuver safely. Barcelona began implementing superblocks back in 2016 to increase the amount of green space, reduce noise and emissions, and strengthen social interactions among neighbors.
2: This prioritization of people are walking over vehicles is a manifestation of the rethinking of how cities are going to function in the future.
0: Cool, cool, cool. But let's get even more specific. Here are four points that Kimberly and John recommend city leaders and planners keep in mind to develop an equity focused approach to improving public spaces. Number one, remember the history. It's important to understand that public spaces weren't always public and they weren't always for everyone.
1: Many parks in America were places of exclusion, particularly for people of color. So now that we're thinking about the transformative aspects of public spaces, and of parks, and of green areas? How do we ensure that we're changing the narrative of how people use the space and how people access the space? How do we ensure that people of color can feel welcome in those spaces? It's really just come into terms of the fact that these were spaces of segregation before and acknowledging that for the community so that when you're starting to engage the community, they understand that you know there is a rich history that's behind this space. And We don't just want to transform it, but we really want to ensure that we're doing it in a way that's respectful.
0: Number two, think of public spaces as assets and not liabilities.
2: These are places that can generate value to the land around it. And they're able to capture some of this value and it goes into more of an upward cycle and things improve dramatically after that. But instead of being in this catch-up where you constantly try to fix small problems, the city should ask itself what public space assets does the city own? You'd be surprised how many cities around the world don't actually know how much valuable land or assets they have in terms of public spaces. On average, 20 to 30% of all land area within city boundaries are public spaces. And I think that recognition of how much assets the city can play with is very, very
1: important.
0: Number three, design parks and open spaces to reflect
1: community priorities. Ensure that community members are really at the center of the process so that when public space is being activated, particularly when we're talking about vacant spaces or utilizing space in a new way, like a sidewalk or a road, ensuring that community members, and here when I mention community members, it's not just residents, but civic organizations, business owners, folks that just utilize that space. Ensuring that they can be part of the decision-making process. Really valuing their authentic priorities has been something that is really important.
2: Quite often we see poor and insensitive sort of top-down design solutions where it's, it's a kind of a design-led solution to public spaces that does not re- respond to community needs. So I think trying to understand what the community needs are, how it's an important piece As part of the city, it's very critical. It's not always a good idea to coming from a top down, let's just make the public space for the sake of creating public spaces without really thinking about what purpose it serves for communities.
0: And number four, think long term by identifying sustainable funding for operations and maintenance.
2: How do you maintain and operate public spaces across its life cycle, not just at the creation funding, but also throughout its use? How do you rejuvenate or revitalize public spaces. More often than not, you see cities really just thinking about let's just create public spaces. But in reality, it's also the operations of maintenance and the process of creation that requires a lot of thought.
0: So that's our first stop on this policy journey. If you want to continue learning about this topic, check out our brief from streets to Citizen Spaces at urban.org. But now let's get ready to switch tracks. Just like this pandemic has shown the importance of parks and green spaces, it has absolutely unquestionably underscored the importance of high-speed internet. I mean, you are listening to this after downloading or streaming on your high-speed internet, and so many of us have had to rely on the internet for so many things, to work remotely, attend school remotely, access telehealth remotely, and stay connected with friends and family. And yet, millions of Americans lack affordable access to high-speed internet. This is what some people call a digital divide. And on this policy journey, we'll be crossing the Atlantic to go to Wales. But first, we wanted to learn more about this divide here at home. To do so, I talked with Ernesto Falcone at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, or EFF. His first major point is that access to the internet is a critical step to bridging the divide. But having just any access to the internet isn't enough.
3: The EFF predicted on March of 2020, right at the beginning of the lockdowns and the beginning of the um, transition to remote, that there is going to be this dividing line between high capacity access and just basic broadband service. And when needs dramatically rise about what you need to do on the internet, such as everyone doing simultaneous communications, video communication, as well as your kids doing schooling at the same time, Having just broadband by the bare minimum of the federal definition was completely insufficient to handle that. It's way more than just, do you have access or not? I think we have to kind of evolve our understanding of what that means in terms of what is useful access today and what's not.
0: According to Ernesto, internet quality falls into three buckets.
3: There's the good enough for now, but it's definitely not ready for the future. There's the not even good enough for now, but there's something there. And then there's the they have nothing. So if I say they have nothing, nationally, it's somewhere between, you know, 10 to 20 million people, predominantly in the rural areas and urban pockets, you know, may say the most poverty-stricken areas of a the city. Then if you go into the not even good enough for now, then you're talking about fairly large swaths of cities and certainly even large swaths of what you would consider a quote-unquote served rural areas these are folks who are traditionally relying on copper infrastructure DSL broadband access you know stuff that was built decades ago they certainly meet the federal definition of broadband but they really can't get much faster than that most of these are speed capacity limited now whereas needs have exceeded them and the needs grow you know on average about 21% every year so that's where i get to the last population good enough for now but not going to be ready for the future if the trend of the last forty years of 21% growth every year continues, we're already in the low hundreds megabits per second usage for satisfying all the needs of an average high usage household.
0: It might be instructive to think about what this looks like in a specific place. Let's take Los Angeles as an example.
3: Los Angeles County is about 10 million people. The completely unserved is in the range of multiple tens of thousands, even in a big city like that. But the population of people who are good enough for today but not ready for the future is more than 5 million people.
0: So here's one important takeaway. Most places are a long way from having established the infrastructure required to really hook people up with the internet we need tomorrow. In the pandemic, though, we saw more immediate challenges.
3: One of the solutions that came up in the emergency response during the pandemic was renting out a whole bunch of mobile hotspots, you know, giving low-income people you know, a free you know device, a hotspot they could take home, and voila, they have internet access. But then the problem is, if you have a bunch of people using a tower that wasn't really ready to have that many users come online, you run into what's called congestion. We tried running
4: a household with three or four teenagers trying to do PlayStation and at the same time trying to do their homework and all that. So you'll swamp the bandwidth really, really quickly. So for everybody else, it was more about having more capacity to do more stuff online.
0: That's Richard Sewell. He works for the Government of Wales, a part of the United Kingdom, as the Deputy Director for Digital Infrastructure. What does someone who is the Deputy Director for Digital Infrastructure actually do?
4: What that means, I suppose, is trying to identify barriers where the digital infrastructure is the cause and trying to overcome those barriers and trying to get kind of smooth digital service delivery, I guess, all over Wales.
0: Thanks, Richard. Got it. Now, you may be asking yourself, why has this journey taken us to beautiful Wales, which Google Maps informed me is on the western coast of Great Britain? Well, it's because Wales has been one of the most successful places to roll out high speed Internet to nearly its entire population. In other words, the Welsh model offers a really interesting example for the U.S. to learn from. To understand how Wales got there, we have to go back to 2011 when a study indicated that a majority of the country would continue to lack access to high-speed broadband for years. Just like the U.S., the access gap was particularly bad in rural areas. The Welsh government wanted to reach those citizens, but private providers saw two big barriers standing in the way of expanding access. The first was high cost. The challenge you face is that There's
4: a cost involved in rolling this infrastructure out. And it doesn't matter what the technology is. And when you get out of the urban space into the more rural space, those costs get bigger because you've got to travel further distances. You've got fewer opportunities for multiple occupancy. You haven't got, you know, large buildings with loads of different dwellings within them. And the other challenge was revenue. Second part is how much of that cost can you recoup through the revenue through monthly subscriptions. So what you find in the rural environment is you've got more costs to reach the buildings and then fewer buildings to return that revenue. So the business case fails a lot earlier than it does in the urban environment. And I think that same problem, that challenge presents itself all over the world. That's why you naturally see whenever there's a new technology, if you're talking about 5G today, for example, 5G will roll out in the city centers first before it gets anywhere near those kind of rural populations.
0: That's where the Welsh government's super fast Cymru program came in. Between 2013 and 2018, the Welsh government contracted a private provider to build a high speed network to new, hard to serve areas. Internet service providers could then use that network to offer super fast broadband to customers, and the government helped verify network performance to make sure the speeds were actually super fast. It's a simple approach, but the impact was remarkable.
4: I think we changed the game significantly through this program. There are about one and a half million homes and businesses in Wales. By 2012, about 40% of those homes and businesses had access to super fast services. We moved the dial from that sort of 40% to the 95, 96%. And it took five years, but it was truly, truly transformative.
0: So could something like this work in the United States? Ernesto is skeptical of some of the resistance.
3: Often an argument that's made is like, oh, that's really expensive to build. It's not economical. We can't possibly afford to do that. Where you look at these other countries and it's like, how is it feasible in all these countries with similar characteristics of rural and urban markets? Right. It's obviously being done.
0: Even if we solve for cost, though, and new legislation includes some resources to help expand affordable high-speed broadband access, we need to acknowledge that meaningful change, like that seen in Wales, can take time.
3: There is no solution that happens fast. I think there's the belief that, you have know, got to get the money out the door so we can start solving this problem right away. That world has already been demonstrated. That world was the pandemic where everyone got mobile hotspots. That's one-year solution. You don't, you can't build infrastructure in a year's time. This is a five-year or longer effort. And, um, you know, if the states adopt that mindset and look at the new models that exist out there, they can do an awful lot of good with the money.
0: But let's not forget that there's a cost of inaction, too. And that cost is high. The average monthly cost of broadband in the U.S. is $60, nearly twice as much as in France or the U.K. And the U.S. ranks 131st out of 206 countries in Internet affordability.
3: I think the most tragic population on this question of equity really is the people who live in cities that don't have good enough access. Often industry will make this only about rural and will argue politically, oh, yeah, we got to spend all this government money to build it out there.
0: Digital redlining practices by Internet service providers have also left many low-income households and communities of color without real access to affordable, high-quality broadband.
3: These big national private players serve these economic and profitable to serve cities They're targeting where to serve and who to serve. They're no longer really operating under historically what they have been required, which is universality. We've really departed that under the premise that competition would solve that issue. But it's clear that no one wants to compete for the least attractive population to serve, which is low-income primarily. Interrelated to that is, low-income people tend to trend historically people of color, black and brown neighborhoods.
0: Compared with the European Union, Ernesto says the U.S. falls behind in terms of how many homes have 21st century access versus basic internet access.
3: The U.S. is somewhere between 33 to 40 percent covered in terms of that type of you know, next generation access. There's at least five or six European countries that are at 80 percent, some region 90 percent. We're in the bottom half, not even bottom half, bottom quartile of where the European nations are. And we do that to demonstrate that it is completely feasible. And then if you go to Asia in particular, they're so far ahead of us, it's crazy.
0: Ultimately, closing the digital divide and ensuring equitable access will be difficult. But Richard offered three key points U.S. policymakers could learn from. First, before you build out the infrastructure, you have to invest in reliable data on who you are trying to serve.
4: Everything in this space comes down to quality of the data that you have. You may well have a building that on your records is one address and then turns out actually that was knocked down and there are now three addresses there. So the quality of the data that we had on our side in terms of trying to work out what the area of need was,
0: we found holes in. Second, focus on a simple but meaningful goal and use it as a guiding star. Centering on performance rather than simply access represents an outcome-based approach that may help you get there.
4: So we weren't demanding that somebody choose a particular technology to reach these communities, but to support that technology neutrality, having really clear goals about what it is you want to achieve and keep those goals simple. So our simple goal was based on a speed threshold. It was based on a basic level of performance rather than
0: anything harder to pin down like X percent of this area. And last, it's all about partnerships between government and private companies, building off of the strengths that each can bring to the challenge.
4: Ultimately, this is about breaking down the barriers between the public sector that wants to extend the reach of services, as it is down to the commercials of trying to reach customers. If you can have that honest conversation about how far the market can reach on its own, how much help it might need to go further, Without kind of suspicion, you know, who's trying to fleece who in this kind of conversation. If you can have that turn into an honestly brokered conversation, you can work jointly together to get a win for everybody.
0: As always, we'll close with some key takeaways. Here are three things to remember. One, legacies of systemic racism have created inequitable access to opportunities and services such as public spaces and high speed broadband. The impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic have exacerbated these inequities and also placed a spotlight on them. American policymakers should consider taking some policy journeys to explore solutions outside of the U.S. Two, access to quality public spaces such as parks can yield a wide range of social and environmental benefits. Cities like Barcelona have made strides in expanding such access, centering their approach and design around community priorities. And three, bridging the broadband connectivity gap is essential to ensuring all people have access to educational, employment, social, and civic opportunities in the modern economy and society. The Welsh example is particularly compelling one of government and private industry working together to expand broadband access in recent years and improve performance. American broadband experts would be well served to take a closer look at the model. So that's our show. Big thank you to everyone we spoke with to make this episode possible. Kimberly Burroughs, John Kirkaw, Ernesto Falcone, and Richard Sewell. Another big thanks to our producers for this episode, Jacinth Jones and Matthew Eldridge. Finally, thank you to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation for their support of this episode. Our music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team and my two kids at home who are still co-producers,
1: Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed all the policy journeys you went on. And I hope you like this podcast. Thank you. Bye.